Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. This morning, in the time that we have, I want to speak to you about the Garden of Grace. Um, I was really impacted, I have to say, by um, just the arrangement Mickey and Jake had worked out is completely unique to them. They, Jake created that. But to have that added on to that song, to see a difference from what we met with a year ago, I find very emotional for me personally from last uh, service as well as on this service. As we go into what we're talking about here today, the Garden of Grace here on Easter, I want to read you out of Scripture. I know that that's kind of unusual to have in a church, but I'm going to read you out of Scripture, okay? A little bit lengthy. Let's begin at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. It says, When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? So they're hiding in the bushes. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Fear enters into creation, because I was naked, so I hid. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave you some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, all wild animals. You'll crawl on your buddy and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity. Now here's a very interesting passage of significance. The first indication we have after the fall of mankind and centering into the world of a plan of redemption. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then right here, he will crush your head, a final blow of death. You will strike his heel, a wound. And so we have the first hint of Easter. He goes on and says, to the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor. You'll give birth to your children. With Prior to this, it, it appears that childbirthing would have been a completely different issue. Your desire will be for your husband. He'll rule over you. The relationship between men and women becomes dysfunctional. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. All of creation now lies under a curse. All of creation because of your actions, Adam. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and now to dust you will return. And so entropy, decay, 
corruption, death, now enters into creation. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And then we see another significant indicator of this day. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. From this we can gather that the first death occurs, and it's done in order to provide a covering for sin. So an animal is sacrificed in order to provide a covering for the sin and the nakedness of mankind. Life is given to cover another. Clothing wears out. Another death is required. It continues on until more and more death, and the covering continues. Sacrifices, that's part of the Jewish system. And animals continued and continued. They covered for the moment, but were not long enough. Christ's sacrifice on the cross covers once and for all. Once and for all. And then the compassion of the Lord. The Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, which was originally available to us. But now he's saying, no, we can't do that. Because if he has that, then he's going to live with his pain and his sin for eternity. Now, after this passage and in this first garden setting that you understand our condition, I want to take you to John chapter 19. And here we have the burial of Jesus. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Jesus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, that's important, about 75 pounds. And then taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen, pressing the spices into the linen, impregnating the lignin, and then wrapping the body. This is in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So Jesus is crucified. The final sacrifice is made for sin, the ultimate. John pointed to him saying, this is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the world. The Persians invented crucifixion, but one could say that the Romans actually perfected it. And they made it an institution. It was the form of execution that was reserved for the worst criminals and the lowest classes. Crucifixion was designed to make the victim die publicly, slowly, with great pain and humiliation. And this was the form of death that God had ordained for Jesus to die, and the death that he submitted to and was made public. Crucifixion was so awful, so degrading, that polite Romans wouldn't even talk about it in public. The Roman statesman Cicero said of crucifixion, quote, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is an act of wickedness. To execute him is almost murder. What shall I say of crucifying him? An act so abominable, it is impossible to find any word adequately to express. The Roman historian Tacitus called crucifixion, quote, a torture fit only for slaves. Now, customarily, the bodies of the crucified criminals were left on their crosses to rot or to be eaten by wild animals, to be a display for everyone, to not offend Rome. Rome was known to leave those bodies up until they completely deteriorated, but on occasions was known to allow executed individuals to be removed by friends or relatives. And in this particular situation, with the Passover coming, the Jewish people did not want this abomination hanging around. It kind of put a cramp on the celebrations. And so there was a permission for this body to be taken down. 
And so Joseph, Nicodemus, they do this mixture of ointments and aloes. And as they do that, it dries and forms almost a cocoon-type um, element around the body. That's an important notation to make. It would have been uh, a very rigid striped structure. Let's continue on in the scripture. In verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. Now we have two gardens, not just the garden at the beginning of creation, but now we have another garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Verse 20, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the other disciple being John, the one Jesus loved. I always found that interesting since John's writing this. And said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight to the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. The language that's implied here is that they were undisturbed. In other words, if someone had broken in to remove the body, they would have had broken fragments and shattered segments of it. If someone had broken out, the same thing would have happened because of the rigidity of the material. Instead, it appears like Jesus' body had literally just evaporated. Finally, the other disciple who reached the term first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then, Jesus, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. We have two different gardens here. One at the beginning of time, the other one at the moment of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus not only reverses the story of Adam, but he reverses our story as well. The Bible tells us that at the beginning at this beginning point of history, at this other garden, when a woman ate of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and then when the man ate also of that tree, that a curse came upon the entire universe of mankind in which our bodies were going to turn to dust, that decay, corruption, entropy had entered into things. What the gospel of the resurrection tells us is that Jesus took that curse upon himself. When Mary who's appearing here in a moment, goes to the tomb, she's expecting to see a body that is in the process of decay. She expects to see what has been the norm of mankind for all of history from that very first Adam, from that very first garden. But instead, she has a different experience. In verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? So they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. She's so caught with her emotion, so overwhelmed, she doesn't even realize she's talking to angels. That's an interesting point that she's talking to angels, because we find angels in that first garden as well. When man is cast out of the garden, when God in his mercy limits our lifespan and refuses entry again, an angel stands at that point with a flaming sword, denying them re-entry. It was a conflict and a terrible, sad moment. But here now, we see angels appearing again in this other garden. But there's no terror, there's no fear. She's not even conscious of what, she, of what she's encountering. And instead, 
They just said, why are you crying at? Who are you looking for? He says, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. And at this, she turned around with her tears still streaming, and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. There's some implication in Scripture that, that when Jesus was resurrected, that something changed his visage. People seemed to have a little difficulty recognizing it at first, but then quickly came to an understanding of who he was. In this case, it wasn't just possibly the visage change. It was also the fact that she's overcome with grief. Her master, the one who had rescued her, who had saved her life and her soul, has now disappeared and she couldn't even mourn him properly. So she turns still crying and then Jesus is there and he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Please just tell me. One of the effects of sin is that we are alienated first from God but then next from one another. Relationships between men and women being damaged and families being damaged. In relationship with God, we find a separation, an alienation. We try to resolve it. In our society today, we've taken to more extreme methods to try to resolve what is basically an alienation between God and ourselves. Well, we think it's maybe because of the bodies we're in or the circumstances we are, our past or whatever it is. And, and none of the solutions really resolve it. That's the outbreaking of sin. But in this situation, not only are angels present, but there's something else that's taking place. She thinks that she's alone. She thinks that there's nobody there who knows her grief or knows who she is or cares about the situation. A disinterested gardener, two strange men that happen to be around the tomb. She thinks she's alone. She feels that sense of alienation but it's not. Part of what happens to us all is when sin comes into our life, it alienates us from one another. It alienates us from God. It alienated that original community. The scripture tells us that, that God would come in the cool of the day and he'd call out to them and say, Adam, Eve, where are you? Let's talk. It's the, it's the nice time of the day. Let's hang out. But when sin broke in, everyone hid. Everyone ran. He called out their names. And they just shrunk back. But in this garden, there is something different this time around. She feels that sense of aloneness. She feels that sense of alienation. But he engages her. In her tears, she doesn't see who he is. Her eyes fail her, but her ears do not. Jesus said to her, Mary. Many times, many people had called her by her name. Sometime harshly, sometime thoughtfully, most times casually or dismissively. But only one person ever called her with that particular intonation. And in a moment's time, her alienation and her isolation is shattered. And she realizes it's Jesus. He begins by telling her who she is rather than who he is. And the alienation is broken. She turns to him. She cries out, Rabbi, teacher. It gets even deeper and more intense than that. In the Garden of Eden, that original sorrow had fallen upon a woman. Now it falls with solace and encouragement. 
He goes on and he says, don't hold on to me for I have not yet ascended the Father. Go instead to my brothers. And that's an interesting phrase there, to my brothers. If you've been following the last couple of weeks, you know that there's a certain point in time where Jesus said that they were his servants and identified them that way. Later, in the communion time, the Last Supper, he says, you're no longer my servants, you are my friends. And now for the first time, he says, you are not my servants, you're not my friends, you are my brothers. How ironic. These brothers are the ones, with the exception of John, who ran away at the crucifixion, that huddle fearfully even now. But something has changed in this garden. Something has changed with the resurrection of Christ that now calls anyone who will come to faith as brothers. So she says, go instead to my brothers. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now what is so phenomenal about that? So many things. First of all, in Jewish society, women could not testify in court. And yet the first witness to the resurrection is a woman. If you're trying to create a story, you don't start there. You start elsewhere. But in addition to this, Mary had an extremely troubled past. She had been part of the occult. At one time, she had seven evil spirits that had been thrown out of her by Jesus. This was a woman who in many ways would not have felt worthy to be doing what she was now doing. She is now called not just to be the first witness, but now called to send the message. A woman who had been deceived in this first garden is now given the truth to share with the world. The contrast between these gardens is immense. These guys that were hiding, that's what we do when we're rooted in the first garden. Our sin, our fear, causes us to run from the voice of Christ, causes us to hide first from God and then often from each other. Every one of us in this room has been under that sense, sentence of condemnation, of death, of decay, of corruption. Everyone in this room has been hiding, and some of us still are. Just as the first man and woman slowed their breathing down and hid behind those bushes, hoping that he wouldn't see them. We also hide behind things, the life that God's given us, the talents, the gifts, the abilities, the relationships. There's a variety of different things that we use to hide from God, hoping that he won't notice the rebellion that lies within us, the death that marks us, the decay that's within our own spirit. In this second garden, all that begins to change. There's one other significant issue that we need to touch upon in this. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, there were some soldiers well-trained in death that were to guard the tomb based on the rumors that he could possibly rise or his, his followers would somehow take him and do something strange. So these men, skilled in the ways of death, were present when suddenly the tomb opens and Jesus is resurrected. They witness this event. They run immediately to their employers and to their authorities 
And we are told that they were given a sufficient sum of money to say that it was all made up. What could possibly be a sufficient sum of money to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Whatever it is, these men accept that. What is it that binds our hearts and our minds to not seeing the truth when it stands right in front of us? There are those of us this day that will hear this truth and this proclamation of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and you're going to be able to walk right out these doors and ignore it completely. What obscures us to the truth and reality? Maybe you can tell yourself that somebody really did take down the body. Maybe there never was a resurrection for the dead. Maybe just maybe all of these people who were hiding and fearful, who now suddenly come forth after the resurrection and put their lives in the line and are executed one by one over the years when all they had to say is it was a lie. All they had to say is it was made up. All they had to say is it was not true and they could have spared their lives and yet these individuals are changed overnight from fearful, cringing cowards to roaring lions in the faith by an event that happened in this garden. Maybe down deep you know that it's true. But there's a part of you that hopes it's not true because it means one day you and I will stand in judgment. That we realize that we are in fact under the curse. There are several hundred stories in this room and beyond today. But there are really only two. One walks from a garden into a grave. And one walks from a grave into a garden. Some of you will be able to leave and you can go home and you can eat or you can turn over on your couch today and you can say it's nothing, it's not real, it doesn't exist, it never happened. But face up to at least who you are listening to. Understand the voice that is in your head at that point. It was there also in that first garden as it attempted to lead astray mankind and attempts to lead you astray now. Or you can hear the truth of resurrection and of salvation that is found in this second garden. You can realize that there is a grace in this garden. That there's something that grows here that can transform and change your entire life. Some of the best books on the resurrection have been written by lawyers and some of whom originally set out to disprove it. Sir Edward Clark, an English uh, jurist, once wrote, as a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidences for the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive and over and over again in the high court. I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. As a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of men to facts that they were able to substantiate. In this garden of grace, contrasting from this garden of decay and death, Something was established. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, what shall we say of the kingdom of God is like, or what shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth, yet when it planted, it grows and becomes the biggest, the largest of garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in shade. Eagles, it says even. This began in that garden of grace, just that little element of faith, but it's breaking open to invade the entire world of reality to return and, and, and turn back what happened in that first garden. To end the alienation. To end the darkness and the pain. 
The prophet Isaiah that Jesus quoted in his ministry said, The Spirit of God is upon me to preach good news to the poor, heal the heartbroken, announce freedom to all captives, pardon all prisoners, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, and the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. There's the garden of judgment, sorrow, failure, alienation, brokenness, and death. But there's also the garden of resurrection, of grace and salvation. And in this garden, the tree of faith grows and eventually will fill the entire earth. You can deny it if you will, but the truth marches on and has for millennia. The question is, which garden do you walk in? Do you insist on staying in that garden of despair and sin and hiding in the bushes and hoping, hoping beyond hope that God will not notice that you're there? Or will you come out of hiding, perhaps even with tears streaming? Maybe you can't even see straight, but you can hear perfectly when with the intonation that only he gives that he calls your name and that you realize that the resurrection is true. The death has been reversed, that there's hope. In a few minutes, we will conclude this gathering and you will leave. And you can walk out shoving these things away or you can walk out this Easter with a completely different perspective. To that end, I would pause. I would ask that in this gathering here, if you would please just give privacy to those. Close your eyes, bow your heads with me. No one looking around. No one is going to approach you. No one is going to in any way engage you. This is between you and God. But on this Easter morning, as I've asked you, which garden do you walk in? Where have you planted yourself? I ask you this. If you are still in that garden of death, if you still are unclear of your future, if you still are caught with your past like Mary would have been until being freed. But today, you want to stop killing things to cover up. You want to stop hiding. Today, you want to repent of your sin, accept that Jesus died on that cross and then rose again, proving that he is God, that he stands in the gap for you, and that you believe that and in faith accept his grace today in your midst of your repentance. If that is you this morning, then with no one looking around, please just raise your hand up before God and I want to pray with you right now where you're at, wherever you are. Okay, anyone else? Just quickly, we're not going to take a lot of time. Okay, yes. Yes, others? Again, only a moment's more. then let's just take this moment right now. Father, first of all, for those of us who have known your grace but have forgotten it, I pray today would remind us. But for these individuals, for these seven individuals, God, that raise their hand before you, that this morning they want to step out of hiding, they want to step out of their sin and alienation, I pray, Lord, right now that they would tangibly hear you calling their name. And that as they repent of their sin, as they turn to you and embrace you, God, that they would have a sense of the fullness of the relief, of the peace, of the release. 
and that they would walk into today a garden of grace and that they would be able to celebrate with us even yet this morning as together we come before your face. There's a tradition we've had in this church uh, for a number of decades now, going back to our time involved in Russia and involved with uh, our Russian Orthodox brothers and sisters there. And one of the traditions at Easter is that uh, the pastor or lead would say, Christ is risen. And the congregation responds back, he is risen indeed. Now please notice we're saying is, not has. Because while it was an historical moment, it's also still current and real today. Christ is risen. So here's how we're going to go. I'm going to say, Christ is risen. You're going to respond back, he is risen indeed. And we're going to do this three times. And by the third time, you're going to be setting an example for the service that's yet to come. Okay? So here we go. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Father God, we thank you that we no longer reside within a garden of despair and alienation, but that we are now in this garden of grace and hope and faith. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue to walk in this garden, that we'd learn new things about you, that we would grow even deeper and fuller in our faith and our understanding. As we go forward to celebrate this day together with friends and family, I pray your blessing upon all those who have gathered. Guide and bless us as we go forth from this place in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ. And the church said, Amen. Happy Easter.